Uh, well, today is a fun day, obviously, church. We, we don't have tables around all the time. We don't have the free chili and cookies all the time. And we don't play bingo, but every other Friday night. Uh, um, <clears throat> but it is, uh, it is a great way uh, to share a life together. It's a great way to celebrate our, our, our communities, a great way to celebrate our church family. But before we get into all that stuff, I do want to take just a couple minutes this morning and follow up briefly on Pastor Matt sharing with us last week with a, a little exhortation that I honestly believe is very timely and uh, very important. So to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me, please, as you're able, in honor of the Word of God? And we're going to read together again part of what Pastor Matt read to us last week, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll read the plain text if you join me in reading the highlighted portions that we will walk through the passage together. Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is what the Bible says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. I've had eight children, most of you know that, but I don't think nursery rhymes are as big a deal today as they used to be when I was growing up. When I was little, I'm not even sure my children know uh, any nursery rhymes. Uh, but there is an old nursery rhyme that goes something like this. It says, there was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence beside a crooked stile. He bought a crooked cat, which caught a crooked mouse. And they all lived together in a little crooked house. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that particular nursery rhyme before. Few of you have, obviously. But frankly, the truth is it doesn't matter because I share it only to make this point. Crookedness, once it begins to show itself, tends to take over one's life. The person who makes a little room for crookedness, who's willing to walk in a little crookedness, may soon find himself surrounded by it. In other words, very simply, crookedness begets more crookedness. And the little sins you excuse, the ones you like, the ones you nurture, maybe the ones you joke about, possibly even the ones you're proud of, tend to attract and lead to more sin. But Jesus came to fix all that. Luke, quoting from the Old Testament, described the work of Jesus this way. He said, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. In other words, Jesus came to fix the world he came to straighten out crooked stuff, like crooked roads, 
and crooked people. Jesus came to make things right. Last week, Pastor Matt shared that as each of us commits to step out into the things God has for us this year, a big part of that stepping out is stepping into the basics of what God wants from us, the basics of how he wants us to live, including, as Pastor Matt shared week, things like being kind. He read from Titus 3. We read it together just a moment ago. It starts again this way. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Now, if, if you don't know, what you find here in Titus is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul many years ago to a young man named Titus, a young man that Paul had trained and discipled and raised up to function as a leader in the early church. And in this particular section of this particular letter, Paul reminds Titus or tells Titus to remind the Christians in his church, to remind the Christians under his leadership and under his care how God expects them to live, and why he expects them to live that way. In verses 1 and 2, he reminds how we're supposed to live. In verses 3 through 7, he reminds why. And the why really boils down to two basic motivations. First, Paul points out that you should live this way because honestly, you've been pretty crooked yourself. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In other words, Paul says, we can be peaceable and kind and considerate to others because, well, we've not always been exactly perfect either. In fact, in my experience, the things that tend to hack people off the most in other people are usually the things they're guilty of as well. Let's be honest. The last time you angrily pointed your finger at someone and said, you always think you're right, was probably because at that particular moment you thought you were right, and you were angry that they didn't recognize it. Some of the meanest comments I've ever heard have come from people decrying meanness in others. People who blast others for being controlling are almost always reacting to the fact that they're not actually the ones in control. And without a doubt, some of the most religious, in the, in the negative context of that word, some of the most religious people are the ones who go around accusing others of being so religious. There is nothing more sinister, and there is nothing more religious than the anti-religion religion. So Paul points out that one major reason to try hard to do good and to be kind and humble and considerate of others is simply in order to reject hypocrisy. I want to do good now because I've so often failed to do good in the past. I want to be gracious and forbearing with others now because, frankly, my own record's not exactly pristine. The second reason, Paul says, for why we should try to live the way God wants us to live is out of recognition and gratitude for the forgiveness and mercy we've received from God in Jesus. Verse 3 begins, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved. But verse 4 goes on to say, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of any righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. It's a reference here to the washing that occurs in holy baptism and water baptism. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so recognizing our own past failings and the mercy and grace we've received so freely from God in Jesus, our reasonable response has to be to devote ourselves to doing good, to living like God wants us to live. So Paul more or less concludes this passage by saying, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And that brings us back to the very beginning. Verse 1 again says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. When Pastor Matt read this last week, he kind of joked around just a little bit, pointing out that there are an awful lot of people in the world who don't like being reminded to submit to authority or to obey their leaders. But for whatever it's worth, to be honest, I kind of appreciate it. Now, if I was super honest with you, or if you know, I, you already would know, my, both my parents had wildly independent streaks. They could resist authority with the best of them. But they did manage to raise me to recognize and respect the inherent legitimacy of authority and lines of authority. I grew up in a bygone era, an era where people still honored policemen and teachers and coaches, and the like. If I got in trouble when I was in school, my parents always sided with the teacher. My dad was a highly decorated Vietnam veteran, and while he could be highly critical, sharply critical of the military, he appreciated and believed in order and honor and duty. I was taught to be quiet and to stand still during the playing of the national anthem. And in my life, at least, sports also played an enormous role in teaching me something about respect for authority. My dad made it clear early and often that the coach was the coach, and it was my job to do what he said. I came from an era in sports where you would get benched for hitting a home run if the third base coach told you to take. If the coach said, take the pitch, you don't swing away. And the coach said, swing away, you don't take the pitch. The coach was not always right, but he was always the coach. And that means he gets to decide who plays and who doesn't, where they play and where they don't, when they play and when they don't, because he's the coach. We live in a very different world today, a very rebellious culture in a very rebellious age. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot go along with the crowd in that matter. Even in the very earliest days of the Christian church, the Christians had to be reminded to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. And we need to be reminded again today. Listen carefully, because lest you lose the context of this verse, I want to make sure you remember that rulers and authorities, at the time the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Rulers and authorities included highly depraved men like Caligula and Nero. Having said all that, however, what I really want to focus your attention on this morning is verse 2. The plain as day biblical reminder 
to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. And more specifically, I want to focus your attention on this verse in the context in which it was given, which is the context of how you respond to rulers and authorities. And that means, to cut to the chase, I want to deal very specifically for a few minutes about how you think and how you speak and how you post and how you tweet about politics and people in politics. If by the time I'm done, I haven't offended all of you, I will have probably missed something. The, ver the verse begins by saying, remind the people. Because the truth is, as Pastor Matt pointed out last week, we should really already know this. But to remind the people to slander no one. Now, in English, the word slander means to say something false and damaging about someone else. It is to say something materially untrue that somehow harms another person or their reputation. For example, if you were to call me a big, fat, old, heinous, rotten, scoundrel, good for nothing, that would be, uh, uh, that would be uh, slanderous since I'm technically not all that old. <laughs> but in the Greek, the word translated here as slander does not necessarily carry the connotation of falsehood. It's simply to speak abusively, maliciously, or mockingly. King James renders it to speak evil of no man. Whether or not you believe what you're saying is true is completely immaterial to the matter. I covered this concept actually in a great deal of detail a number of months back when Pastor Matt and I talked through the Ten Commandments. And I reminded you of Luther's explanation of the Eighth Commandment, where he wrote this. We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything, say everything, and explain everything in the kindest way. And I will remind you again that the prohibition against slander in Titus 3 comes plainly in the context of how you respond to rulers and authorities. In other words, it plainly means you may not slander, you may not speak abusively, maliciously, or mockingly of President Trump or House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or Senator Elizabeth Warren or the fill-in-the-blank person of your choice. Certainly part of this prohibition in Titus 3 is a reminder not to lie about them. And i got to tell you, the more I watch evening news, the more concerned I am that lying has become the new norm, including lying about how much the other guy's lying. It, it really is amazing. Without a doubt, there is an extraordinary amount of slander flying around in politics and in the media that cover politics. But as followers of Jesus, you cannot get caught up in it. As a follower of Jesus, you must do better. And so the Apostle Paul reminds you to slander no one. So part of the injunction is a reminder not to lie, but the greater part of this injunction is a reminder to love. A reminder that the whole will of God is summarized in two great commandments. To love God 
and to love people. And if you really love someone well, you will not speak ill of them. If you really love someone well, you will not slander them. If you really love someone well, you will not speak maliciously or mockingly about them. As a follower of Jesus, you've been commanded to love everybody. Jesus went so far as to clarify. That includes even your enemies. You've been called and commanded to love President Trump. You've been called and commanded to love Speaker Pelosi. And you've been specifically instructed here in Titus 3 not to speak ill of either of them. I am constantly surprised and very often, frankly, shocked by the sorts of ungodly and unchristian things people who claim to follow Jesus are willing to say about our national leaders. While the Bible is painfully clear, we are to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Even when discussing politics, God expects you to be peaceable. To be in Greek, not mache, not a brawler, not quarrelsome, not contentious or fighting. Even when discussing politics, God expects you to be considerate. In Greek, to be epiakes, epi gentle, kind, and behaving seemly. Sadly, the truth is you cannot expect our national leaders today to show the way and to set an example for you on how this should happen. At the State of the Union address a week and a half ago, the President of the United States publicly snubbed a handshake offered him by the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And before the night was over, the Speaker of the House publicly ripped up a copy of the President's speech while he was still standing at the dais. From there, the two of them went on for days to publicly insult and demean one another, including insulting each other's faiths and insulting their prayer lives. There is nothing peaceable or considerate or seemly about any of that behavior. Not the behavior of the President of the United States and not the behavior of the Speaker of the House. But what you need to understand as a follower of Jesus is that you cannot defend any of those actions. You must not defend any of those actions. You may not stand in league with or support of anything which is contrary to the nature of and the word, and the will of God. This sort of nonsense has to stop. At the very least, it has to stop among the people of God with Facebook and Twitter accounts. You may not join in the culture of rudeness and mockery that presently defines American politics. You may not do so and effectively claim to honor Jesus or represent him in the world. I cannot tell you how many times I have listened and watched as people use harsh name-calling and bitter insults to denounce, to denounce President Trump for his use of harsh name-calling and bitter insults. I cannot tell you how many times I have listened and watched as people denounce the anti-biblical positions 
of people on the left, Nancy Pelosi or Elizabeth Warren, in patently anti-biblical tones, exhibiting patently anti-biblical attitudes. But the Bible makes it clear. It's not okay to live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And as a side, let me just say, deeply, from a position of being deeply grieved, there is a rapidly growing, increasingly hostile generational divide in the evangelical church over primarily political issues. As a leader within the Christian community, I am deeply, deeply disturbed by Christians on both ends of the spectrum. Older Christians and younger Christians are separating angrily over matters of politics, and brothers and sisters, this ought not be. The church, which should be showing the way, the church, which should be setting the example of how to think and how to talk and how to act in every conceivable arena of life, including the arenas of public policy and, and politics. The church is being rapidly drawn into the exact same sort of bitter polarization that we find in our culture. And so this morning, I remind you to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, not quarrelsome or contentious, to be peaceable and considerate, gentle, kind, and seemly, and to show true humility toward all men, Republicans and Democrats alike. Let me take just a moment to address this whole exhortation to show true humility. Say true humility. Can be translated all gentleness. But true humility toward all men. And I want to take a moment here because the truth is some of you are way, way too comfortable criticizing other people. You criticize the president, you criticize the Congress, you criticize the governor and the mayor and the dog catcher. You criticize your boss, you criticize your co-workers, you criticize your in-laws for how they handle their money, you criticize your cousin for how he handles his children. You're always ready, stunningly ready, to offer your opinion on everything. How this could have been done better, how that shouldn't have been done at all. But what you really demonstrate with those hyper-ready opinions is a staggering lack of true humility. It leads one to wonder if you really are that much better at running the country, running the business, running the family, and running the church. Or if maybe, just maybe, you have too high an opinion of your own opinion. Now, don't get me wrong. There is right and there is wrong. And there can be no doubt whatsoever that leaders often get things wrong. There is a time and place for speaking up and for speaking out against wrong ideas and wrong actions, against bad legislation and bad public policy. But you still have to do that without slander or mockery or malicious talk. You still have to do that in ways that are peaceable and considerate and seemly and kind. And you need to make sure when you do that, you do it with true humility. That you do it in full recognition and honest acknowledgement. You don't know everything. 
And, and in fact, you don't know everything the person making the decision you don't like knows. You need to do it in full recognition and honest acknowledgement. That at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. When it comes to politics, you can and often should challenge foolish, antichrist, or unbiblical policies and ideas. You can and should do that. It is entirely appropriate, and I would suggest needful, to condemn the rude, disrespectful, and caustic comments that occasionally come from President Trump. It is entirely appropriate, and I would suggest needful, to condemn the anti-Christian, anti-biblical policies promoted by many on the left who oppose him. The key, however, is to address the moral, biblical, or rational shortcomings of the conduct or of the policy position while not strafing the person behind them. While treating people, attack ideas, expose ideas for their wrongheadedness, but treat people with love and graciousness and humility and respect. The ideas are going to pass away. The people will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. For the church to look to the world, and particularly to the world of politics, for direction or for heroes, is to turn everything on its ear. It is time for you and me to set the tone. It's time for you and me to set the example. It's time for you and me to show the way. It's time for you and me to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men all the time. And the truth is, you and I are uniquely qualified to do that because we understand that when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul concludes, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, most of the time when I teach or preach, I provide an outline for you to follow along, if you'd like, on the YouVersion Bible app. And at the end of every one of those outlines, I, provide, I try to typically provide a, 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 suggestion, a suggested action step that you can take to, to put the word into practice. If you don't have the app or haven't checked it out, this week my putting the word into action Suggestion is this, and I'll just read it to you. Take some time to consider carefully how you think, talk, post, and tweet about others, especially those with whom you disagree. Repent as necessary. If you've posted comments or reposted other people's comments that were not peaceable and considerate, Consider posting an apology with an explanation of why you now regret the previous post and inviting others to join you 
in committing to communicate political opinions only in terms that are gracious, peaceable, seemly, and humble. As the people of God, we will do it right or we will dishonor Jesus. We will do it right or we will undermine the purposes of God in the world. We must do better. And I call you this morning as your pastor to commit to doing so. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you as always for the power and the clarity of your word. You do not leave us lots of room to be confused about what you want. You do not leave us lots of room to make excuses for what we want. And we are grateful to you for that. Forgive us where we have sometimes behaved unseemly, where we have spoken things uh, or spoken things in ways that were inconsiderate. Uh, unpeaceable, lacking in humility. Forgive us, Lord, because we believe we are created in your image to represent you in this world, that we are born again into the family of God to represent you in this world. Help us to do it well in every arena of life, including the arena of politics and public policy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.